Welcome to Podopticon. I'm Randall Hendrickson. Consider your typical course in American political thought. Now take the table of contents of my guest's new book, African American Political Thought, A Collected History. Lay it over that course syllabus, and you see that course come to life. Just as you see what's been missing. And so you're impelled to ask yourself, why the incompleteness of my view here? My guests this week are Melvin Rogers and Jack Turner. They edited this magnificent volume and contributed to it. As a reader with some familiarity, or so I thought, with the American political tradition, the book comes as a welcome provocation. I think back on the courses I've taught in American political thought, in which I thought I offered a rich enough historical perspective. I fancied myself fluent in the history of freedom, all while ignoring Phyllis Wheatley. How could that be? Melvin Rogers will speak beautifully of Wheatley in the episode, and hearing him opened my eyes. That's the tip of the iceberg in my own ignorance and experience, but I reckon the whole study of American political thought needs the reorientation offered here. My guests aren't shy of offering it, and they make a profoundly compelling case for their approach. This is no ordinary volume, then, consisting of essays around whatever people found interesting at some conference or another. There's an urgency built in, as I suggest at the outset. The field of study they propose here is some 25 years in the making. We talk about the obstacles to its emergence, and here Jack Turner is especially good. So listen for that near the start. But once you finally announce the field, then what? What do you mean to do? Well, aside from the personal provocation to the reader, you have a provocation of an entire field. As Jack Turner says, they do no less here than recenter American political thought on black political thought. That's a bold move, but it's hard to say it isn't necessary. Consider, for instance, Jill Lepore's massive tome, These Truths. Lepore is a liberal patriot who insists that the U.S. is rooted in some understanding of the dignity and equality of all peoples. It's just that the darned hypocrisy gets in the way from time to time. Now consider Stokely Carmichael, whom she uses to discuss the Black Power movement. By 1966, as Daniel Immervar pointed out in his review of Lepore's book for The Nation, Carmichael had reached his limit of organizing, registering people to vote and such. The reality is that this nation from top to bottom is racist, he said in the New York Review of Books. We won't fight to save the present society. Lepore is disappointed in this approach, which she finds irresponsible insofar as she thinks it's the sort of thing that bolstered the right. That very year, in 66, Carmichael was invited to Berkeley to speak, and when he accepted, Ronald Reagan, then a gubernatorial candidate, jumped at the chance to define the bogeyman. Quote, We cannot have the university campus used as a base from which to foment riots, he announced. Carmichael wasn't deterred, but for Lepore, his speech simply played into the hands of the clever right, which from there surged. Too much protest. That's essentially what Lepore finds on the left, as she sees a causal link between it and the right's emergence. 
Lepore, who tends usually to demonstrate a sort of sympathy with her subjects, verges on saying that the Black Power movement should have behaved itself. If that's too far, let me just suggest that it's no way to engage the perspective offered by the Black Power movement or by Carmichael himself. Carmichael ought to be engaged not as a mere holder of some position, but as one with arguments. And this connection, I think, of Rogers and Turner's various answers to my question, why is it that, when African-American thinkers are mentioned in works and journals devoted to American history and thought, it's disproportionately Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King who get the attention? Rogers and Turner are brilliant here, and the theme, in a word, is domestication. In short span, that conversation pays tribute to the richness and depth of Douglass's and Martin Luther King's careers, and it reminds us of the hold that natural rights liberalism has had on our self-understanding. An understanding we tried to shake up a bit in the last episode with Mark Somos's book, American States of Nature. African-American political thought bestows upon American political thought a greater variety, depth, and perspective. It speaks to everyone. To the amateur, it's an introduction to a universe that's been too easily ignored. To the expert, it's a provocation to show us who else might fit in this story. It's a work of ugly truths beautifully presented. The things a democracy must confront. The willingness to do so, says Rogers, drawing on the African-American political experience, is essentially the measure of a democracy's health. Absolutely necessary to serious thought about our own polity. We're lucky to have this book, and I'm lucky to have had its editors join me. Melvin Rogers is an associate professor of political science at Brown University, and Jack Turner is associate professor of political science at the University of Washington. So with that, let's get to the episode. Melvin Rogers, Jack Turner, welcome to Podopticon. Yeah, well, thank you for having us. I, I think we're, we're over the moon uh, in terms of excitement for both of us. We were we were quite emotional opening uh, opening the books for the first time. Very excited to be here. Oh, it's a real delight. It's a real delight. I really appreciate your joining me. Um, now, while the origin story of books is kind of a standard question, it's often kind of boring and artificial. That is, the answer to why did you write this book is probably most often something like a prosaic, well, uh, I wanted to because this stuff is interesting to me. Um, but this volume actually comes with a sort of urgency built in. Just look at the first line of the intro, which I'll read. African-American political thought, a collected history, heralds the emergence of an interdisciplinary field of study that has been in the academic making for more than a quarter century. So over a quarter century, that leads me to ask the big question, what's, what generally or historically are the obstacles to the emergence of this field of study? Well, I mean, I think one of it actually, one of the obstacles has to center on the question of genre. Um, you know, when we think of political philosophy, we also think about it in terms of, you know, either dialogues or philosophical treatises. And even though there are definitely philosophical treatises in the history of African-American political thought, because black people have been so excluded from uh, the centers of intellectual production throughout U.S. history, that they have pursued political thinking by other means, you know, by means of uh, slave narratives, by means of pamphlets, 
by means of sermons, by means of satire. And so part of the difficulty of for academics getting their sort of heads around the field of African-American political thought centers on the challenge in learning how to interpret these very different genres of expression uh, within the idioms of political theory. You call this an interdisciplinary study. What, what fields of study fall under African-American political thought, Melvin? Yeah, well, you, I mean, you name it. Um, so, it really, so it really knows no boundaries. I mean, for purposes of, uh, of this volume, uh, obviously political science, political theory, history, religious studies, uh, English. Um, uh, so we could, you know, we could go on, uh, on and on. Um, and much of the, uh, uh, delimitation here, uh, is largely determined by, um, uh, the sort of, the sort of scope of the volume itself. That is to say that it could only house, uh, 30, you know, 30, 30 chapters, 30 figures. Well, only, uh, we'll get to that. Well, no, let's jump to it. The book consists of 30 essays on 30 figures from 30 different scholars, uh, that, that's a lot of chapters, and I can't even imagine the practical difficulty of wrangling um, 30 contributors. You know, I, I've contributed um, myself to a volume, and I would hate to work with somebody as irresponsible as I am. And, you know, but let's not, uh, let's not pursue that. I do want to come to a more serious point about this, that while the 30 is a lot, um, you still had to make some hard choices. So maybe talk about the hardest cuts and the significance of offering, offering this up as a, what you call a provisional canon. I, I, well, the hard, I mean, God, the hardest cuts. Um, I mean, there are a whole host of figures that, you know, we wish we could include uh, in the volume. You know, I think figures like T. Thomas Fortune or Henry McNeil Turner or Ella Baker. Um, those are some of the figures that uh, come to mind. Um, uh, June Jordan uh, would be another figure or Bell Hooks. Um, There are a whole host of figures that we would have loved to include. I mean, one thing that reflects on the introduction is that that we we thought about and we we wish we had thought to include more musical figures um, like Billie Holiday or like Public Enemy. And um, and so those were those were definitely very hard choices. But what we aspire to do is we want to get a certain amount of chronological range going from the 18th century all the way up to the 21st century. Um, we also wanted to showcase a variety of political positions and expressive genres. Um, so we have, you know, people who are working centrally in part politics like Frederick Douglass in the 19th century uh, through both narrative and through oratory. But then we also have creative artists working, um, you know, more at the uh, creative edges of the field, like George Schuyler in the 20th century. I mean, one of the things you kind of discover with, uh, um, you know, with a, with a volume like this is that you want to construct it in such a way that even those who are excluded, um, uh, could potentially be part of the conversation. And that has something to do with how you open the door uh, to the volume. So it matters that it's, you know, African-American political thought, a collective history, um, and that it doesn't present itself as being definitive. And so it, it essentially is a provocation to say, well, how else, who else would you include in this conversation? And how, and what are the other ways that you might 
um, uh, um, sort of delineate and describe uh, the trajectories of the of the tradition that are not captured. Uh, in what we have here. Right. You mentioned what you call this, a, a collected history, and that is also how you, uh, what you call your approach, which among other things is uh, thinker-centered. So why don't we kind of uh, dive into that choice and uh, about making a, a thinker-centered uh, collected history and what this means in terms of, of, of how maybe you complement and depart from your predecessors and influences. One of the main approaches to Black political thought at least within our home discipline of political science, is one pioneered by Michael Dawson, who in his 2001, uh, his magisterial book, Black Visions, he sort of lays out six main ideologies that constitute black political thought. And the ideologies are black nationalism, black Marxism, black feminism, and then three varieties of black liberalism, radical egalitarianism, black conservatism, and dissolution liberalism. And there's real value in this approach in that these different ideologies are tied to different currents and movements within black politics from the 18th century to today. But when you pursue an ideological approach, which often gets lost, is a particularity of individual thinkers, individual thinkers who straddle different ideological positions, uh, individual thinkers who in many ways are trying to break out of them and to rearticulate uh, the ideologies that help form them. So we wanted to, we, we sort of in some ways, you know, follow more of the approach of our mentor, Robert Gooding Williams, who really insists on reading texts in the history of black political thought in the same way that you would read the text of someone like Aristotle. Uh, and that giving it the, you know, what, what Gooding Williams calls the careful attention, the probing analysis, and to look at these figures as not just taking positions, but making arguments and, uh, and to interpret them in such a way that we lay out the steps of their arguments. And of course, what's implied by that is that each of these thinkers, or each of these thinkers is a political philosophical point of view, right? There's a voice that you're trying to uh, capture. And so these figures most certainly have something to say about politics, but embedded in their stories about politics is often a story about the vision of the good life, um, how what one to understand human nature, right? What is the very sort of the sort of grounding of, of political of political society? What renders it le- legitimate? And so the decision to um, do the sort of thinker-centered uh, approach is an attempt to sort of capture that specificity as it is responding to um, the, the sort of the, the sort of problems that afflict the life chances of uh, of African Americans. And of course, since this, and I must say this, you know, since this is a sort of a collected history, there's a different way one could do this, right? I mean, you could do African American political thought that focuses on uh, social movements and uh, political organizations and use those organizations and those movements as the basis for a philosophical uh, point of view to sort of tell the to tell the history this because we're partly disciplinary in terms of our, in terms of being political theorists uh, this uh, text focuses more on the individual figures and trying to uh, lay out the specificity of their minds so you take a look at various volumes and journals devoted to American political thought and history, right? And and what you find is is not surprising that there's a real underrepresentation of African American thinkers in these in these volumes. And what I found particularly interesting in this context was your mention of something I've noticed only anecdotally. 
And that's when um, African-American thinkers do make appearances in volumes devoted to American history and thought. It's disproportionately Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King Jr., it seems. It might seem like a small point, but I'm, I'm very curious. Why are Douglas and King um, the ones who emerge as the African-American thinkers who get disproportionate play in books and journals on, on American history and thought, do you think? Look, um, in the United States, there is, um, uh, even if it has been contestatory, there is a kind of background mythos about the American polity, about it being um, the shining city on the hill, that um, the problems that we have faced, particularly as it relates to racial uh, inequality and white supremacy, that these are sort of anomalous to the sort of trajectory of the American polity. Um, whether we have in mind, you know, Gunnar Myrdal or whether we have in mind uh, Louis Hartz, right? So it's, it, it is on a trajectory upward. And the stories of Frederick Douglass, a certain reading of Frederick Douglass and a certain reading of Martin Luther King Jr. obviously folds very nicely into this story. And of course, even there, that involves a dramatic distortion uh, of uh, what Frederick Douglass was about and what uh, the arc of Martin Luther King Jr.'s career was about. Both were intense and deep critics of the United States. Um, Frederick Douglass' famous Fourth of July speech, I mean, he's very clear um, that America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. I mean, I mean very clear about that. Of course, this is not the bit that one will want to focus on uh, with Frederick Douglass. So I tend to think that, that, there, that, that uh, the selection of uh, certain kinds of African-American figures, they're selected because they can easily, a portion of them can easily be folded into this kind of narrative that I just uh, laid out. And because of the prominence of those figures in the public imagination, this also serves as cover to say, look, we've sort of focused on the most important figures that one would want to focus on um, uh, in terms of having contributed to uh, American political discourse. Chip, you want to get in on this? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that usually what the incorporation of Douglas and King do in those types of stories is they're meant to serve to sort of reaffirm and validate uh, natural rights liberalism. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the difficulty, the, the thing that frustrates me about it, I mean, first off, yeah, if, if you reduce it to Douglas and King, you're massively foreshortening that tradition. But also the corpus of Douglas and King is very wide and very wide ranging and very conflicted at times, especially mm-hmm. with Douglas. And, um, what I find most fascinating in Douglas is his fluidity, the changes that he made in different positions as he went along um, over the course of, you know, a career that was almost 60 years long. Um, so, you know, so that's, that's part of the, the frustration, but yeah, I mean, but part of the reason that they get incorporated is to reaffirm sort of the um, consensus story, the natural rights, liberal story, but that, again, that does, uh, that that completely you know does injustice to the democratic socialism within you know King's own work, the anti-imperialism within King's own work, and furthermore, also uh, the 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 reflections on revolutionary violence in Douglas's work and the the justification uh, in the use of violence against uh, the regime of slavery. So it, so I think it's important to point out that not only are they, you know, sort of enfolding them, but they're domesticating them as they do so. Yes. 
this really cracks open American political thought. And that, if you're going to, your first intervention, of course, is to suggest a thinker-centered approach. But as you point out, that necessarily spills into a kind of um, reorientation of, well, what is American political thought? Um, So let's dive in and talk about this intervention, which we've been kind of skating around anyway. I mean, we've recentered American political thought on Black political thought. Uh, that's what we've done in this volume, and we've made it as an we we've framed it as an intervention in American political thought. In part, Melvin and I uh, went to college at Amherst College in the late nineteen nineties. That's that's where we met, and you know, in addition to Robert Goodett Williams, two of the people that we studied there uh, were David Blight and uh, Jeffrey Ferguson, hmm. and both Blight. And Ferguson were mentees of uh, Nathan Huggins at Harvard. And Huggins had um, an approach to uh, both Black history and American history that argued that these are mutually constitutive, that you cannot study um, American history and know American history without knowing Black history, and you cannot study Black history without looking at the ways in which Black life has been interwoven with the idioms and texture of the U.S. national natural project. Mm-hmm. And David and Jeff and uh, really conveyed that approach to us. And um, I, I should mention that Jeff is a is a contributor in the volume. He wrote the essay on George Schuyler. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Jeff is also the person to whom we dedicated the volume because even though, uh, Jeff was able to finish his essay on Skylar, uh, he died in 2018. And, uh, so we, we put it to press for him. And, um, and so much of the vision of this volume is indebted to Jeff and many of the people that were surrounding him. And we want to do to sort of American political thought, what Nathan Huggins did to American history. I mean, Chip, uh, I think he puts the point very nicely. I mean, the, the, the thing that I think is worth uh, reflecting on is how African-American political thought takes up uh, elements within this broader tradition and engage in various forms of reconfiguration and extension. Um, and, and, sometimes, and sometimes the reconfiguration means that we need to let something go in the service of something. In, in the service of something else, right? So, so the very first chapter on uh, Phyllis Wheatley, um, and although Wheatley has to be very careful uh, about this, um, during the American Revolution, I mean, she's quite clear that the kind of so-called enslavement that the colonists are experiencing is only metaphorical. Only metaphorical when compared to her Black counterparts, right? And so it raises the question, well, if it is metaphorical and what Black folks are really experiencing real, then what really is required to sort of transform that relationship? And one of the things that you see as you come downstream through the other figures is a recognition that, yes, um, you need the franchise. And yes, you need formal equality. But you also need to belong to a culture that recognizes you as equal, that sees you as free. And that's very different than what the American colonists were up to, right? By the time you get to Angela Davis, the chapter that Neil Roberts wrote, I mean, Neil Roberts, I mean, Angela Davis will, will tell you that our condition doesn't begin in freedom. It begins in slavery, right? Um, and, and thus now, so if it begins in slavery, then the way to configure politics itself is to think of it as a quest, a journey toward freedom. 
And it raises the question of what must obtain, not just simply institutionally, very important to Angela Davis, right, that we have the right institutional structures to support us, but what must happen uh, socially, right? Um, and Neil, Neil does a masterful job in that in that chapter on Angela Davis. But this is how you begin to see the ways in which these Black folks are standing in this tradition and they're engaged in a reconfiguration to endow the very tradition, American political thought, right, um, with greater worth, um, greater traction, right, and and to help it do right by the things that it claims to be committed to, right? At the close of your introduction, you invoke Socrates near the close of his life, as if to bring us back around in a way to the concerns that animate the book. But you proceed somewhat gingerly, right? Uh, by this invocation of Socrates, that is, you don't mean to suggest that the thinkers in this provisional canon are mere footnotes to Socrates, nor is Socrates tacked on here, as you say, just as a like a legitimizing force. So as we ourselves come to a close with our conversation, let's chat about the use of Socrates here and what you mean to suggest finally. One of the things that, you know, uh, Chip and I want the readers, and Chip will get in on this, want the readers to be able to walk away with, um, is both um, the place of African-American political thought in this wider drama that we call um, the history of political thought and its distinctive character. And this moment of invoking Socrates was a way of both capturing these two elements at work, right? Um, that in that in that sort of wonderful moment at the very beginning, really, of the apology as Plato recounts Socrates' Uh, a life, the trial and the death of, of Socrates. I mean, Socrates is very clear at the very beginning. Look, I have these accusers. They basically badmouth me. Um, I will defend myself. I will meander. Um, I might not make sense. I'm being crude here. Um, their speeches will be adorned. They're lying and I'm telling you the truth. And really what's at the heart of that um, is, you know, must truth be beautiful before the democratic masses accept it? Or will you be able to grapple with the ugly truths? And this tradition, the tradition of African-American political thought, says the measure of a successful democracy is its ability to grapple with the ugly truths. I mean, this is at the heart of it. Chip, you want to get in on this? Yeah, absolutely. And, and one, one of the ways and that, you know, um, and yeah, I really, you know, have to say, I mean, it's a co co-authored introduction, but that final closing on Socrates is really Melvin's inspiration. Um, one of the paradoxes this produces, however, is that the bearing witness to ugly truth produced within the African-American tradition of political thought has been, in many cases, of exquisite artistic beauty. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the paradoxes, you know, within the tradition is that as it bears witness to ugly truth, uh, it produces arresting images and arresting words and uh, a, a resting song. Um, and we see that at several places in the volume, but probably, you know, uh, the best place for it is in Lori Balfour's chapter on Toni Morrison, where she is really grappling with the ways in which Morrison uses language to try to reconcile her readers to, uh, both responsibility for, for black readers, responsibility for their compatriots and suffering and to our white readers' responsibility for the horrors that their nation has produced. And mm -hmm. um, and so there's, you know, 
an ascetic re- reconciliation that's going on uh, with the hardest, most difficult parts of our history and the most difficult parts of ourselves. That's wonderful. This book is a, is a real tribute to that kind of effort. It dwells in the ugly truths uh, beautifully. Melvin Rogers, Jack Turner, thank you so much for coming on Podopticon to talk about your book. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks, as always, for listening. I hope you'll join me next week as I speak to historian Kyle Reese Mandel about his book, Neighborhood of Fear, The Suburban Crisis in American Culture, 1975-2001. to Until then, 